where all my children are the light Born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right My people are warriors, all we know is to fight Pray, they see God and everything I write One time for the one time on the double fisting Sorry Jay, I don't always double fist So now I have um, the pleasure of introducing to some of you And reintroducing to many more of you For this packed audience we have tonight um, in LA traffic. Uh, a good friend of mine, um, she has certainly become like a sister to me. Um, she is an incredible activist. She's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and she is the founder of something that I am actually rocking today, Black Futures Lab. Is it right there? Did I just make that up? Okay. Black Futures Lab, and they're doing some incredible work that we'll just talk about in a moment. It's none other than my good friend, Alicia Garza. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Thank you, sis. Thanks for having me. Thank you. There's hey. your chair over here. Hey, everybody. Hello. Okay. So, um, Alicia, it has uh, become a new thing for me to open my podcast with a rapid round. Okay. I like a rapid um, it's round. It's a little icebreaker. We've been already breaking the ice back there, coughing on hot mics and whatnot. My bad. This is all good. Bad. It happens. It happens. A little hack. <laughs> It's dry out here. It, yeah, that's true. It really is. Facts. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the first question, morning person or night owl? Morning person and night owl. What? Yeah, I can stay up late and I also get up early no matter what. So you just don't sleep? I do. Okay. I get my seven hours, you know, but okay. I don't need them. Uh, favorite Beyonce song? <laughs> I have to just pick one. Yeah, one song. Um, um, I'm gonna pick. Um, I'm gonna go with uh, "Blow." Okay, that's a cute one. This it's cute. cute. You know, that was Naja. Naja is a Beyonce stand, not a fan. Yeah, I understand. Stan. She I, met I Beyonce. Was like, Beyonce. I'm not gonna wash my hair. I was like, You're definitely washing <laughs> your hands. Yeah. B would want you to wash Please, your hands. Especially now There's with the virus coronavirus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, favorite comfort food? <sighs> cheeseburgers. Okay. You said plural too. Yeah, and okay. a good cheeseburger though. <laughs> Not like McDonald's cheeseburgers. There's an art to cheeseburger. No shade, Kareem. Sorry. <laughs> I was raised on McDonald's, but yeah. that's not the best Happy cheeseburger meals. there is. It's mm-hmm. not? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, McDonald's is not going to endorse this show. Uh, <laughs> next Sorry is... about this. <laughs> Top three sheroes. I like Ooh, this Ooh, Harriet Tubman. Mm. No, that's not good. Yeah. I know. That's not good. good. No, it was, was like, like, hello. Mm, okay, like, I was good like, hello. That's a shade for Harriet. I know. I was like, hello. Mm. Uh, Harriet Tubman. Mm. Um, Rihanna's making my list lately. Okay. She's okay. really killing the game. And um, my mom. Oh, yeah, I love that. Um, Android or iPhone? iPhone. <laughs> but the Android has a better camera. I just do not. I can't it's just do it. true. It takes better pictures. You can't do it. I can't do it. I know. I tried it. I tried a little Google phone. It wasn't working for me. My um, interns asked your protest playlist, but I feel like that could go a long time. So you could find of- it on Spotify. Oh, you said I'm going I'm to promote this. Just follow me on Spotify. I got That's all kind the- of playlists. Well, name one song from it. For a protest? For a protest playlist. Ooh, okay. Well, there's so many good ones. <laughs> but I'm going to go with Erica Badu, Soldier. Okay. It's a great one. All right, mm-hmm. good. Um, Biden or Sanders? 
<laughs> you ain't gonna catch me up. <laughs> nice try. How about Warren? Oh, is that what we're doing today? Okay, well, more to come on that shortly. Um, favorite Black History Month figure? A Black History figure doesn't have to be Black History Month. Okay. Um. Well, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. You got to pick a favorite. Um, I'm gonna go. I'm I'm feeling Fanny Lou. Okay. Lately. All right, Fanny Lou Hamer. Yeah, Y'all look sick and tired of know. being sick and tired. Yes. Aren't we though? Yeah, we definitely We've been are. sick and tired a long time. Listen, for real. Jesus. For real. Okay. Wait, I want to go back to this other question. I Wait, guess we'll, you can't we'll go, go back. back and wrap it up. I can't. Okay. No, girl. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> I was like, All right. I here's talk about here's this. these last two are gonna be rough. Okay. Okay. I could do it. Coronavirus or Trump? <laughs> I'm gonna go with coronavirus. <laughs> he said I might survive that. You know? Is that what you're saying? I got a flu shot. Oh. I, I feel like I have. I don't know if that's gonna protect Listen, you. Listen, I have a running chance. I have a running, a running chance. You better run though. But we don't have no chance under this man. Ooh. Zero chance. Okay. All right. Um, this is my last one. It's terrible. It's not, well, actually, I'm going to end on a lighter note, but this one I need to get an answer from you. Okay. It's Diamond and Silk or Clarence Thomas? Clarence Thomas. Ooh. Look. Yeah, you're making decisions. Look, he didn't speak for most of his time on the Supreme Court. I, I, but he's voting. Silk, yeah, but. I'm not supposed to argue doing your rapid you're round. You're not supposed to I'm argue doing my rapid round. But also, mm-hmm. but also. I feel like Clarence Thomas, he is a rule maker, but he's not a culture shaper. I think Diamond and Silk, they're culture shapers, which- Who's culture they shape? Listen, <laughs> you see what's going on over here? They selling hats to say woke. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Make America woke again? No, I'm asleep. Okay. So. Okay. So here's my last one. <laughs> Most embarrassing moments. I have so many. <laughs> I have so many embarrassing moments. Um, okay, here's a, a fun one. Um, actually, I don't want to tell that one. No, tell it. Tell it all. Tell it all. You got some champagne. Okay, Go first of all, I'm really clumsy. I, I mean, I just, like, I run into stuff. Mm-hmm. I, like, do too much. Um, so I'm I'm having embarrassing moments every day, mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, most recently, I lost track of where my car was. I'd been traveling a lot and I parked at the airport and then I get back at midnight and I can't find my car. I mean, I just couldn't find it. And I walked around for about an hour and then I finally called the security people. I was like, can somebody like drive me around? Cause Mm -hmm. I don't know where it is. Do you know that I was within one row of my car for about an hour? You know, I had a little lock button. It, my little key fob is low. It, the battery is low. Well, we gonna right change now. that now. Aren't you know we? what I mean? We gonna change that. One hour, I'm like, you know, it's like being in a maze. Yeah, you too busy. It was a lot. I think you gotta start Ubering or getting car service to the airport. No, I gotta take uh, Miss Mayetta, my Jeep. Do you have a name for the Jeep? Yes, I named after my grandma. Oh my lord! Okay. Well, we gonna move on to we gonna move on to the to the substantive stuff. Miss Mayetta. Miss Mayetta. Okay. Miss Mayetta. Miss Mayetta. Because but you your know. grandma never left you like your car just did you. That was wrong. No. Your grandma but never left my you. Gran would have told me I should have done better and took a picture of the little. Oh. Well, she tells me to do better. 
So um, I want to, for a second, acknowledge that there's this um, story about you being 12 years old yes. and um, fighting the county to ensure there was contraception available at your school, at the yep. county schools. At the school nurse's office. Yes. Mm -hmm. Please explain how somebody at 12 is thinking like that. That well, is incredible. My mom, um, when she had me, she was a single mother. Mm -hmm. And so my mom talked to me a lot about sex. As soon as I was old enough to understand it, she was talking to me about it because she had to really figure it out. The first year of my life, I lived with my grandparents because mm -hmm. my mom didn't plan to be a single mother. Mm -hmm. And, um, she always told me sex makes babies and babies are expensive. Ooh. So, of course, in my little liberal community, when everybody was freaking out about having condoms in the school nurse's office, I was like, well, sex makes babies and babies are expensive. Mm -hmm. So if you don't want to make babies, mm -hmm. there's things you can do about that. Mm -hmm. I think the thing was at that time, People were freaking out about teen pregnancy. They still do, but it was really bad then yeah. because we had a different president who was trying to bring all kinds of weird stuff into the mix. And um, the reality, though, was that at 12, my friends were all having sex. Wow. They just were. And so the idea that you wouldn't give people the tools they needed to be safe, mm -hmm. but then you want to be up in arms about teen pregnancy just seemed ridiculous to me. Mm -hmm. So I got involved and we won. Wow. Yeah. So um, speaking of Winnie mm -hmm. and activism, did you find yourself um, championing cause after cause or was that your 12 year old moment and then you had a hiatus? My 12 year old moment was um, really being deeply interested in pleasure, desire, consent, um, and knowing that as young people, we weren't taught to trust our own instincts. Mm. And when you're not taught to trust your own instincts, you're easily swayable mm. by other people, which means you get all kind of weird information that's not true, but because you're so swayable and you haven't been taught critical thinking skills, mm -hmm. right? It's a really easy way to get yourself in a lot of trouble. So I started doing peer counseling and peer education work. I did sex education work for a long time, HIV and AIDS testing, mm -hmm. pregnancy testing and counseling. I got really involved in the kind of reproductive rights, yeah. reproductive justice world. And that was really important to me. I felt like you know, it's important to deal with the world as it is, not just as you want it to be. Mm. And when we deal with the world as it is, then we allow ourselves, right, to have more choice. Mm -hmm. And I believe a lot in choice. And I know for my mom, um, she didn't have the same choices that I had. Mm. And so all of those things she was preaching to me about sex making babies and babies being expensive was really a shorthand way to say, I want you to have more choices in your life. Mm -hmm. So that's what I feel like I've been fighting for since I was 12. Wow. So you have um, now spoken about your mom twice. Mm -hmm. And um, I know we were talking in the back and I had not realized this as much as I call you my sister, um, that your mom passed away Two years ago. Two years ago. And um, to brain cancer. So just wanting to know from you, how much has that 
made you lean more into access to healthcare, the access to healthcare fight. Mm -hmm. Um, it's made me be all in. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you all know this, but I work every day with people who take care of other people. Um, domestic workers clean other people's homes. We take care of other people's children. Um, we help uh, support independence for people with disabilities. And we take care of people who have illnesses, whether they're sudden or long-term. And um, my mom was somebody who was incredibly capable on every single level. She could do anything. My mom could write calligraphy. She was incredible with growing things. She um, just was incredibly creative and she held everything together. And one day she was fine and the next day she wasn't. And literally seven weeks from being diagnosed with a brain tumor, um, within seven weeks she was dead. And in that period of time, I learned more than I had ever known about the healthcare system. My mom being as amazing and meticulous as she was, um, she had everything she needed. My parents, you know, were um, on Medicare. Mm -hmm. And my mom like went through all those plans to the T to better understand what's the coverage like and what is this gonna mean? And she was like a scenario person. Mm -hmm. What that meant was that we didn't get caught in a net that I saw a lot of people getting caught in. And even still, um, navigating hospitals, insurance companies, bureaucracies, when somebody that you love is sick is the worst possible feeling. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Um, we, for three weeks, didn't know what was going on with my mom. Um, the week we found out, everything just moved really, really quickly. My mom couldn't speak. She was like basically unconscious for a period. And so we were suddenly having to make decisions that she didn't tell us what she wanted. So it's literally like guessing, mm -hmm. okay, well, this I think this is what she would want. Um, and then we had to put her into hospice, right? It was like... There's no operating on this kind of tumor. They're aggressive. You can either do chemotherapy and radiation and she will never recognize you and you will, she'll never be the same, wow. right? Or we can um, have her die with dignity. So we did hospice and hospice care, if you don't know, is really a time when someone can get into a care plan where basically they get everything they need, but your goal is not to fix what's happening with them. Your goal is to make sure that they have a dignity. Mm -hmm. And hospice can last for three hours, three days, three weeks, three months, three years. It just really depends on the person. When I sat with the hospice nurses, um, they told us that my mom was the first patient that they had that had insurance. And so because she had insurance, we didn't have to pay a bill. Literally, it would have been $11,000 a week to have her in that hospice facility if she didn't have insurance. And there are so many people that don't have insurance. Right. So what would you have done? Just every single day, you're kind of like counting yeah. how much this is costing you. Um, so I guess for me, I got really 
deeply involved both in the healthcare fight, mm -hmm. but also in the fight around what it means to make sure that everybody has care. Mm -hmm. um, if it was not for hospice nurses and palliative care nurses and people who just love on you when you really need it and you like can't take care of yourself because you're taking care of another person, we couldn't have made it. And every single one of us is going to need that care at some point in our lives. And we're going to have to provide that care in, at some point in our lives and need care to help us provide care. Yeah. So um, I'm very passionate about people being able to access that. Like if my mom didn't have that, um, we would have been scrambling to figure out what to do, where she could have been, how to make her comfortable, what to do in her last moments. We didn't have to do that. Yeah. And I got to um, be with her when she died. And that's one of the most important moments in my life. Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't have been possible if she didn't have health care. Yeah. And so part of the reason why um, I like for people to have those moments, especially like on this podcast, like what I call the humanizing moments is because so often people think that you take on a fight because it means your name is going to be in shiny lights or whatever. And it's like literally um, an act of survival. No, it's mm -hmm. like you something touched you to your core and you want to do something about it so that either someone has the same experience you had yeah. or so they never have that same experience. Right. And I think um, along those lines, something else that you really put your life and time and energy on the line for mm -hmm. is Black Lives Matter. That's right. Um, Talk about, I know what Trayvon's death meant to me. Um, talk about what kind of tipping point um, Trayvon was for you all in establishing Black Lives Matter. Not just a hashtag, but a movement and a way of life. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Black people are dying every minute in this country. Yeah. And that particular case... Um, Oddly, I, I was following it because it just seems so bizarre to me. Mm -hmm. It seems so strange to me. Like, how could an adult get away with killing a child? Yeah. That's how I was seeing it. And I, I didn't actually think that he would get off. I mean, I thought it's like at that time it was 2013. Yeah. Right. Like, how could an adult get away with killing a child? Yeah. But, you know, because we live in this society, um, the way that trial was dealt with, it was almost like watching several episodes of Law and Order back to back. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you saw all the courtroom scenes because it was televised and it was reported on pretty regularly because at that point it had become kind of a phenomenon. So I was watching as um Trayvon's mom was being skewered in the news um, and her parenting being questioned, mm -hmm. right? I was watching as they were trying to reconstruct Trayvon after his death, right? As like some kid who was aggressive yeah. towards an adult in his community rather than a 17-year-old who was Go, coming back from the store with Skittles and an iced tea. He was a kid. He was a baby. And the pictures that they would put out where they, you know, caught him not in his best moments, yeah. which we've all had 
But I know for me and you, like we probably had our worst moments, but they weren't on social media because it wasn't it wasn't as big. Um, The girl that was his friend, Rochelle, I watched as they ridiculed her for her literacy levels and calling her not intelligent because she was defiant. And all of that kind of kept me hooked. Um, I also have been an organizer for almost 20 years. And I've spent most of my time organizing in communities where black people are not taken seriously because we're poor or we don't speak as the same as somebody else does or um, we're not deeply entrenched in all of these processes that people get to be a part of and wield and take power, right? And so it's always been very clear to me that um, black culture is celebrated, but black people are not. And when it comes to um, making money or advancing an agenda, black people are even more disposable. And so for me, my work organizing black folks around gentrification really gave me a sense of what it means to put out narratives about black communities that serve somebody else's agenda. The agenda in Trayvon's um, situation was that um, they were trying to um, paint this child, right, in a stereotypical way that basically blamed him for his own death. That's right. And they even called it the Trayvon Martin trial as if he was on trial, but he didn't kill himself, Mm -hmm. you know? So... So I'm watching this like it's law and order. And I'll tell you the night of the verdict, uh, Patrice and I, who have been good friends for decades, Mm. um, were talking. She was at Soledad Prison, I believe, uh, visiting one of her mentees. And I was with friends uh, at a bar watching the verdict. And when it came down, I think we were just all collectively in shock. And it was about Trayvon, but I didn't know him. A lot of us didn't know him. Um, And so the shock that we felt is nothing compared to people who loved him and knew him. But I can say that um, it it impacted me in a deep way. I have a brother, he's eight years younger than me. He's six feet tall, got a huge Afro, and he's growing up in a community that's not unlike Sanford, Florida, Mm -hmm. that little gated community that Trayvon was in where somebody said, you don't belong here. That could have been my brother. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it impacted me in a deep way. And I think the declaration that Black Lives Matter really comes from um, a place of defiance. Mm -hmm. You know, like the way that I saw my community trying to make sense of why that verdict happened the way it did was all about blaming black people for things we didn't create. Yeah. He should have not been wearing a hoodie so he wouldn't have looked so scary. Um, So that's why we need to ban the wearing of hoodies. And that happened in Oklahoma, right? They tried to pass a bill in the state legislature to say you couldn't wear hoodies at school as if that's going to stop kids from getting killed by vigilantes. Um, People also on the woke side of things, right? Talking about why are people so mad? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what do you mean? We should be angry every single time somebody dies before it's their time. And so all of these ways in which we've also internalized and rationalized our own oppression 
um, is what caused us to say Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. and then to put action behind those words. What does it mean to build a world where Black Lives Matter? And and what is so fascinating to me is um, the resistance to the affirmation. Like, I remember it was Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. All Lives Matter. I was going to say next. It's just it's it's fascinating to me that um, that was the comeback. And Mm -hmm. and for us to even be having this conversation this week where the Emmett Till Mm -hmm. anti-lynching legislation was just passed since 2020. That's right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I do. I do. And, you know, not only did we get those narratives, but we also got narratives that were when those didn't work. Then it became, oh, well, Black Lives Matter hates the police. That's right. Right. And there's a lot of tension in those statements because Mm -hmm. it's attempting to do what COINTELPRO tried to do Mm -hmm. and was successful at, frankly, 40, 50 years ago. Um, where essentially you paint black activism as terrorism. Yeah. Right. And it's not um, Mm. for now, it is not illegal to demand that the state be held accountable for the times in which it kills people Mm -hmm. without cause. Mm -hmm. Right. And to have that level of power to be able to decide whether somebody lives or dies, um, there has to be accountability for that. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about Black Lives Mattering, not only does it not mean that other people's lives don't matter, it means that to have all lives matter, you have to also have Black Lives Matter. And then to talk about blue lives is like deceitful Mm -hmm. because there's no such thing. We don't have blue people. Unless you're on Avatar. Unless you're an avatar. But we don't live in an avatar world. You know, right? we might be I right mean, now. I'm not sure. We'll what see what happens in November. Yes. But ultimately, being a blue life is a profession. Mm-hmm. It's something that you choose. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we don't choose how we're born, mm-hmm. but we do choose how we categorize people. Mm-hmm. Right. And. The choice to categorize black people in such a way where it keeps us from the basic things that we need to live dignified lives is very different, right, Mm -hmm. than being born black, Mm -hmm. right? So I I just feel like for us, um, Black Lives Matter is an opportunity for us to really interrogate why the systems that organize our lives Mm -hmm. Um, keep black people and black communities left out and left behind. And it also gives us an opportunity to reimagine a world where that's not true. Mm-hmm. And and to the point of reimagining, um, some of, at least to me, some of the most surprising resistance came internally. Oh, yeah. Right. Like from our own folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some would say older generations, but it wasn't all older it folks. It wasn't all older folks. What is... Um, one of the most hurtful experiences that you had trying to do something that's like, no, this is for you too. Like this is, this is for you as well. You know, um, the one that comes to mind and I, I don't know if I want to, okay, well, I'll just, I'll say what I'm going to say and then say what you say. We're just going to do what's going And we'll just put the little Nene gif up. I said what I said. (laughs) So, um, I went to speak with a group of progressive legislators 
uh, members of Congress. Mm -hmm. And I was asked to be on a panel um, with a few other folks who were kind of doing organizing from the arts and culture space. Then there was BLM and then um, another advocacy group. And it was moderated by um, someone that I think we would call like a, a civil rights hero. And um, no names today, huh? They'll know who they are. So <laughs> we don't know. Well, you know. All right. Well, I'll let you. It's actually it's an archetype, though. It's not about a, it, one person. Okay. So I'm telling the story so we understand the dynamic. Okay. Of what happens when people don't show up. Well, come on, preacher. So but come on. <laughs> this person. Um, Instead of really getting to some of the core tensions and questions, just use that opportunity as a moderator to um, slam us, um, to talk about how we had no strategy and how, you know, if we were really about it, we would be doing X, Y, and Z and basically making this argument that the only way to make change is inside through legislatures mm -hmm. and basically nullifying right all of the work that was being done that was actually changing the conversation um, socially and culturally which is what creates fertile ground for new laws and policies of which that year alone uh i believe there was uh almost 40 new laws passed about criminal justice reform in 26 states across the country. Mm -hmm. But yet this person- That wouldn't have happened if- Correct. Right. So you guys don't have a strategy. You're not doing it how we did it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, we are inheriting what didn't get done. Yeah. And trying to figure out what to do about that. Mm -hmm. And that was really painful to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've held on to it, not in a bitter way, but it's made me think a lot as somebody who's not 25, um, but I'm also now 55. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about what kind of mid-G do I want to be? Mm -hmm. I'm almost 40. I turn 40 next year. Ooh, I so, turned 40 this past Yes, you October. did. And you lived your best life. Yes, I did. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about it, though. How do I be somebody who can be a real bridge between people who are just new to making change mm -hmm. and people who have been working for a long time and maybe not familiar with the ways in which making change changes over time. Yeah. Um, and how do I make sure that I'm being supportive in that way and not like, it's okay. One of those people yeah. that like is afraid to learn new things and also, um, is afraid to show up as a voice of reason in a way that's not judgmental. Mm -hmm. Does that mean you have a TikTok account? I don't have a TikTok yet. I just learned about TikTok. Man, I, I never really got with Snapchat. I need don't like, know I how need, to do We need to things. do like a dance routine. Listen, so I can barely tweet. I don't know. I'm what? Like, okay. Well, so so you talked a little bit about um, this time frame and what happened and this kind of adjustment. And I want to go to just this past year, 2019. We know that that was the 400th anniversary of the first arrival of the docu the first documented enslaved person. Yep. Um, you launched not last year, but this work is starting to pick up. Black Futures Lab. I did. And um, I have been completely fangirling about it because one of the things you hear the most, um, Alicia, and we see this all the time in the 
organizational circles that we run in, it's like black organizations don't have no data, right? We don't have any metrics. We don't know. So the fact that you came through dripping with the data, I was so excited. And so I want to just um, acknowledge first that the black census, um, it was the most polled, surveyed, the largest, well, the largest amount of surveyed black folks in 155 years and 155 years. So that alone is commendable. Yeah. Um, it's commendable. Then you can go tell the elder, whoever it was like, Mm -hmm. well, run, tell that. Oh, gee. Um, (laughs) but I, but I think that what would be, what would be great for the listening audience to know is what you've done with the data. So you didn't just go collect and, you know, this was really about getting in tune with the community, with, with a community that you spent so much time organizing, but still saying, no, I got more to learn. Let me go here. So what was that experience like? And then we could talk about the agenda that's come out of it. Okay, good, because I have a lot to say. Good. Um, You know, it's our three-year anniversary. We are three years old this week. Yay! Come on, Black History in the making! Yeah. And, um, yeah, the Black Census was really about doing deep listening Mm -hmm. to our communities and really expanding who we think of as who we are. Mm-hmm. So um, we went into rural communities and urban communities. Mm-hmm. We went into communities um, where folks are immigrants and folks are born in the U.S. We went into communities where folks identified as lesbian and gay, mm-hmm. bisexual, transgender. And then we also surveyed a bunch of people who don't identify that way. Mm-hmm. We also... Um, went into prisons and jails and talked to people who were incarcerated and talked to people who were formerly incarcerated. We talked to people across the political spectrum. We didn't just talk to people who agreed with us. Um, Actually, we talked to people who were far on the conservative side and far on the progressive side. And what we found was that there's a lot of things that we have in common. Even though we're super different, we don't all come from the same place. Mm -hmm. We don't all know each other, you know, contrary to Mm -hmm. popular belief. (laughs) Cousin. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, But there are some things that we hold in common, particularly in terms of things we experience every day and in terms of things that we want to see for our futures. Mm -hmm. And the most common thing we heard from that survey project was that nobody had ever asked me what I thought about what I experience or what I want for my future. And a year and a half before a major election, what does that mean that black folks were saying, nobody's ever asked me what I want, what I need, what I think about, what keeps me up at night. But people tell us all the time what we want, what we should want, et cetera. And it usually- I know what you want, little black person. I'm gonna go do this for you. And it usually involves a plate of soul food. I've never voted in an election since I've been able to vote Mm -hmm. where there has not been pandering in the form of soul food plates ever. This is direct shade, shots fired. It's not shade, it's just the reality. The reality is black communities get engaged culturally, but we don't get engaged substantively around the things that we care about. 
And that has consequences for politics. It has consequences for power building. Mm -hmm. It means that we might be close to power, but it doesn't mean that we're exercising power. Mm -hmm. And that has real impacts on our lives, whether it be you having access to healthcare, whether it be me being able to be powerful in the cannabis economy and not um, watch that economy be gentrified. It means the difference between whether or not I can access higher education, Mm -hmm. the difference between whether or not I can make a living wage. All of these things matter. Mm -hmm. And so what we did is we collected a bunch of data. We found out what keeps black communities up at night. You'd be surprised. It is criminal justice reform, but it's also wages that are too low to support a family. It is also unaffordable health care. It is also the lack of access to affordable housing. And there's all this conversation in the census data about um, the ways that we experience violence every day, whether it be at the hands of the state, at the hands of communities, or at the hands of the police. Mm -hmm. So what did we do with that? We translated that into a political agenda that we're calling Black Agenda 2020. Mm -hmm. And what it represents is um, three things. One is clarity about how policy that impacts Black people must be made in order for it to improve black people's lives. Mm -hmm. So we need policy that is race forward, not race neutral. Mm -hmm. We don't actually change black communities' lives when we don't talk about the ways that race shapes the rules that shape our lives. You mean the people that say, I don't see color. The people that say I don't see color or the people that say if we just improve economics, everything will be better. A rising tide lifts all boats. Correct. Ain't got no damn boat. That hasn't worked for us. Yeah. It just hasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Second piece is that government is actually responsible. So a lot of what has happened coming out of movements from the last period of civil rights is that a lot of the responsibility of government has been transferred onto nonprofit organizations, right? Mm -hmm. And government has kind of washed its hands of the responsibility to take care of people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We pay taxes, we pay into a government, and we're supposed to be getting things back from it. Um, but unfortunately, what has happened is that um, corporations have taken over um, the workings of government that is organizing our lives and distributing things that we need, mm-hmm. and they're hoarding for themselves, right? And giving us crumbs. And then because there's crumbs, but there's great abundance. We're fighting each other for crumbs rather than trying to figure out, well, how come you got all this stuff and we got nothing? Right, (laughs) right. Right. And then the third piece of our agenda and the way that we think about policy is that in order to make progress on the issues that we care about, Mm -hmm. we actually have to advance progressive solutions. Mm -hmm. So we are kind of putting a line in the sand around um, free market policies don't actually improve our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, We have to be thinking about progress in a different way and progress for people, not progress for profits. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the agenda really looks at the main kind of core issues that impact our lives. But the reason that we developed it was not just to lay out all the problems. It was also to talk about what people need to be doing right now to address them. And as we're going into an election season where people are coming into our communities, making a bunch of promises about what they're going to do and what they're not going to do (laughs) and then pushing soul food in your face that never gets eaten. (laughs) Why do they do that? How you want to have a plate from Sylvia's? You don't eat it. I don't understand. (laughs) How does that happen? Did we just lose you on the... You back? 
I get really upset about that. I see. I get I, really upset I saw about it that. happen. You I leave a good I Do you leave a good plate of food on the table? You don't eat it? Only if I'm full. But see, I'm hungry. <laughs> okay, so anyways. Um, <laughs> we lost it for a minute. She's back. Oh, I'm back. But I'm just telling you that soul food thing gets on my nerves. I, I'm clear. Um, that, I, that I am not confused about. That or talk shows where you got... Don't get me started. What? No, go ahead and start. What'd you say? Huh? I just... I have election trauma. Yes. Do you want... We can talk about it. I have election trauma. Sit back in the chair, kick your feet up, talk about it. What is it? Well... (laughs) So I have questions about the election coming right up. I'm, like, good with a lot of things, Mm -hmm. but um, I just want to be treated like we are intelligent people that have stuff to say yeah. about what we think needs to change about this country and how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, what I know is that, for example, there are a lot of people making decisions about government assistance that never had to be on it. Ever. You know what I mean? Ever, yeah. So, like, I want that to change. I don't want you to come and show me that you can do the latest dance move. I want you to come and tell me. I said it. Sure I want did. you to come and tell me. Um, what you're going to do to make decision-making more accessible to me. You know what my election trauma is? Mm. Us. Tell me more. Like, (sighs) (laughs) yes. No, so it is is twofold. There are two things, actually. My first trauma is, tell me about the black voter. The black voter. As if there's just one type. So I like spazzed out earlier this week. I saw it. Okay. (laughs) Like, I'm like, there's black voters. Just like there's black communities. Right? And they're they're not monolithic and they're diverse in their interests and all that. So that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about with the black census um, information that you all, the data that you all have and with the black agenda. I'm wondering if there will be a push to have black elected officials at every level of government to sign on to this thing. Yes. Because if there was agreement from the black conservative, mm-hmm. I'm not going to fall into my own trap, yeah, they got their to own the own very thing. progressive black yeah. voters, yep. why can't there be agreement and buy-in from? There can be. Yeah. So our first step is getting agreement and buy-in from our folks. Yeah. Um, because anywhere that policy starts is really with people who are most impacted by mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now we have a program working in nine states called Black to the Ballot, mm-hmm. where we are registering new black voters, uh, particularly in communities that have been politically active over the last five years because of everything going on, mm-hmm. whether it be BLM or they got involved in Occupy Wall Street yeah. or, you know, because trans folks are being murdered every day, they got involved. Yeah. But they're not being asked to invo- get involved electorally. Yeah, And we know that in a bunch of states, like... The difference between who wins and who loses could be a couple hundred votes. Literally. Literally. So that's that's my other trauma. <laughs> it's us. And so so I'm talking about black voters, but like we treat our politics as optional. Agreed. And we can't afford to do that. And it's like this dangerous cycle. So I've been like saying this all week about like this, you know. You're not involved because you don't see anyone involved in the process who looks like you and who's working on behalf of your interests. There's no one there working on behalf of your Mm interests because you weren't involved. That's right. But we can also do better by not expecting people to come to us to get involved. 
There are a lot of reasons. But also, that's whack because they do that for everybody else. Like Correct. There's, there's literally, like, white folks walking down the street yes. with Make America Great Again hats. Yes. And the Democrats are like, wait, but come back. We need you. Correct. Meanwhile, black folks are, being, are like, hello. Like, blue down to we the exist. That's why we exist. Because that has been true for a long time. The party has been chasing after um, white voters who are not going to come back. They're not coming back. They're not Because there's too many of you. us. Because there's too many of yeah. us. They're and not that coming makes them back. nervous. Period. Yeah. So. They don't um, feel safe. Right. Yeah. But also, <laughs> what is also true about what's wrong with politics yeah. is that we get very focused um, on things that are not organizing communities. Mm-hmm. A community organized is the most powerful vehicle you can have. And so part of what we need to do to change the transactional nature of politics um, is to make it more relational. Mm -hmm. And the way we make it more relational is by organizing our folks Mm -hmm. and organizing across the barriers that keep us separated. Mm -hmm. And so when I say that it's weird to me that black trans folks aren't being organized to participate electorally right now, even though... There's hundreds of trans people being murdered every year. That feels weird to me. And that's on us. Like, we're not actually doing the work in our own community to build the kinds of coalitions and bridges amongst us that can make us more powerful than just like the sum of our parts. So we're doing that, registering people, but also getting people motivated around an agenda that encourages them to get involved because... A lot of people don't care about Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, or Joe Biden. They want to know, how am I going to get food on my table? How am I going to make sure there's a roof over my head? If my parent gets sick, can I take care of them? Mm -hmm. That's what everyday people care about. Who do you care about? You said a lot of people don't care about Biden, Sanders, or Warren. Who do you care about? I care about who is going to create the best terrain for us to have the best outcomes. Who is it? I think it's Elizabeth Warren. You do. I do. Are you at all concerned about the delegate count? I'm concerned about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about a lot of things. But let me tell you why we did this endorsement. Yeah. Um, for us, it is about terrain, landscape. Mm-hmm. I think, frankly, that we are going to be in a lot of trouble if we don't start getting some real clarity about what the agenda needs to be moving into 2021. Um, Whoever is in office is gonna set an agenda and we have a decision to make. Is it ours Mm -hmm. or is it somebody else's? Mm -hmm. The other thing I think is at stake is who is going to be the best at governing, which is different than, right? I'm just gonna keep telling you what I'm gonna do and you're either gonna like it or you're not gonna like it. There is something about democracy being a verb that means that people of great scale need to be able to participate in the decisions that impact our lives. Um, And I think, and what I know from polling our supporter community, is that um, she has the better plan for how to do that. Do you think she can win? If people vote for her. I mean, I have to be honest, like, I don't like politics. Um, Why not? 
So what, what don't you like about politics? This, this <laughs> whole process. Um, I, we treat candidates like they're saviors of some kind, mm -hmm. and they're not. Mm -hmm. They're vehicles to move an agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, do I think she's electable? Yeah, if people would vote for her. Mm -hmm. Do I know the barriers for people voting for her? Totally. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't think that a woman can run this country. That's real. Um, In the, every community. That's period. the problem. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Um, another issue I think that comes up is that um, we treat politics like their movements. But what happens in the White House is a very particular set of dynamics. Mm -hmm. It is fundamentally about compromise amongst a wide range of perspectives and agendas. But now we're mo we've moved into a landscape where um, the very structures of governance are changing to lock out more people. Yeah. Right. And so I think that has to be a consideration when we're thinking about who knows those levers enough to be willing to break them open mm -hmm. and who's got the tenacity, but who's got the know-how. Um, this is not an ideological thing for me. I would be happy if a progressive one, and I feel like what's real is that, um, I, yeah. The only people that I don't want to win, right? Yeah, who are they? Um, well, Donald Trump, I don't want him to win again. Yeah. Um, and then I don't think people should be able to buy their way into elections. And you're talking about Bloomberg. I'm talking about Bloomberg, but I'm also talking about Steyer. Mm. I mean, with all love and respect, I just feel like if we're going to talk about restoring democracy, it has to start with not buying your way into it. Mm -hmm. And if we set a precedent, where because you have the most money, you can do the most amount of gymnastics that actually replaces real support from people on the ground, mm -hmm. um, then what are we doing? Would you, do you say- And mm -hmm. all that money mm -hmm. could actually re-enfranchise yeah. all, all the people who are being poll taxed in Florida right now. Yeah. And you could really change the outcomes of That's elections right. That's right. with just a fraction of what you've spent trying to get into the thing. So said, what are we really about? You said you hate politics. I hate it. Do you identify as a Democrat? I identify as somebody who wants to see real change. Mm -hmm. And so does that mean no? <laughs> I don't think a lot of people resonate with mm -hmm. um party labels. Mm -hmm. I think party activists resonate deeply with party labels. That's right. I personally feel like um, what I resonate most with is a plan to transform how politics happens mm -hmm. in this country. And I'm a rock with whoever is trying to do that in the way I'm trying to do it. Yeah. I, um, I respect that a lot. And it's, it's funny because I keep getting in these situations, you know, on air and they're like, oh, well, you're a Democratic strategist. I'm like, no, I've just I vote Democrat. You know, even in, in my house growing up, it just was not a thing. It might be because we're West Coast folks. people. I don't know. That's I'm not sure. But it's just like this. We know that this um, party hasn't been particularly loyal to us. We also know that the Republican Party is far worse. That's true. But it's like, why do we have to pick? 
the thing, right? Like where's our, our own thing? And that's what I think is so dope about um, what you all have done with Black Features Lab because it gives us our own voice outside of a party apparatus, outside of organizing for and with them um, after taking, you know, uh, Bloomberg money in 33 states and at the party to get on the stage after Kamala and Corey and Julian are no longer there, you know, yeah. um, which is uh, immensely frustrating to me, particularly this cycle because yeah. of how much is on the line. Yeah. And so I just wonder now, I think my, my greatest fear is knowing that we've wrestled. I don't even want to say that it's apathy. I don't know that there are so many black voters who are apathetic. I just think that they have made a choice about where they should spend their time, you know? And so how do we re-engage people to believe that this is something that's worth their time and in their interests? Mm -hmm. I think the way that we do that, is my mic on? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the way that we do that first and foremost is by being with people during more times in election cycles. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, I was in South Carolina. We were there at the same time. And I just always feel terrible. I feel terrible going into a place where folk get descended on for like three weeks. And then all of a sudden it's a ghost town again. There's a black woman who spoke about this where she said that they're all going to be gone. Like, again, that is like mortifying. And that's why people don't like politics. That's right. Yeah. You know, and... You know, it was deep. I was like sitting at the hotel. I was having breakfast. I was on a call and I like saw people that I know who work on campaigns and they just go from campaign to campaign. And I'm like, yo, I'm sitting here in this hotel lobby with you. You're on your eighth campaign, but you don't live here. Mm -hmm. I don't live here. But this is how this this machine works yeah. right now. Yeah. And um. I think most people just want to feel like somebody cares and is going to do something. Yeah. I think most people feel like um, I just want to get back to normal. Mm -hmm. And while that's not where we're headed, <laughs> there's no this is a whole new normal. And I think we need to kind of wrap our heads around that. I do think that it points to what we can do to shift how politics happens. Mm -hmm. I think the way to do it is to make sure that we are talking with people, not at them. Mm -hmm. I think the way to do it is to make sure that we are talking about rule changes, right? And not um, just making cultural references. Yeah. Um, and I think the way to do it is to make sure that people are setting the table, not just being at the table. Mm. And to me, if we're able to lock in on those things, we're good. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't stop talking about the fact that um, who I consider to be my opposition is taking advantage of all of the weaknesses of our side. So, you know, we could be mad at Michael Bloomberg entering the race, but I will tell you, um, he has a black agenda. Yeah. And he is organizing black elected officials and organizing in black communities and paying people living wages to do outreach for him. It's not right, but he's taking up space that we are leaving on the table. Yeah. When we listen to the State of the Union address um, from this president, um, he talked more about and to 
black people than I think the Democratic Party has done in four years under this administration. It's not right. It doesn't mean he's genuine, but he's taking advantage of things that we're leaving on the table. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about text woke to some number, period. Yeah. So when you have a dynamic where you're hungry and somebody shows up with food, you can't be mad that people eat. Yeah. But if we don't like that, we have to change the way that that happens. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm interested in. Well, I hear that. Um, Alicia, thank you so much. I want to give folks an opportunity to ask you questions. I'm so grateful that you came here after your board meeting to spend time with Um, So if there are any questions, we will definitely allow them. Yes. Like going back through to make sure I got all my questions. I have 5,000. Thank you. We didn't even hear criminal justice reform. Oh, we could get into all the things. You said all the things. I'm trying to think how I want to phrase this. One question that I have that I guess came up when you described who was going to be your ideal candidate, you said Elizabeth Warren. Uh-huh. I know one thing that struggles for me is one of the things you brought up was, well, it needs to be someone who's not just going to say what they want to do, but it also has to be a voice who knows how to compromise. Mm-hmm. Where I find the struggle with politics is the compromise usually comes at the expense of people like me. Mm-hmm. So yes. when you say that, I can't really fully get behind that either because when I hear the word compromise, I think you kind of understand too. Compromise means compromise me. So that's where I kind of struggle with. So could you talk about getting people engaged in that kind of thing? Sure. So to be clear, what I said was that politics is a game of compromise. And I think that for those of us who particularly get involved in politics because of, um, our ideology or our values, um, which are different things. Um, Often we do it in a way where we expect that everybody's gonna have the same ideology that we do. And so just the plain reality is when laws get made, you're having to negotiate between people who who don't have the same values as you. And that takes skill, right? And you're 100% right that compromise in politics often means that we don't get what we need. So you really need somebody who has the level of integrity not to throw us under the bus. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't come just from their own integrity. It comes from us being organized and them knowing that there's accountability on the other side of it. So I agree with you. I don't think that we pick somebody because they're the best at compromise. I do think you need to pick someone who knows how to move through government as it is, not just how we want it to be. But I don't think that means you don't fight for the way you want it to be. I think I often struggle with um, the way I think we get taught to engage in this form of political um, engagement is from a place of not actually knowing how the thing works. Mm -hmm. So like I talk to people a lot about primary votes and folk think it's one voice, one vote. I'm like, no, it's delegates, right? That's a fully different process. So if we're not clear about how the mechanisms work, um, then we're kind of making choices that are not grounded. So for me, when I'm making decisions about who I think can best navigate that system, it's not me stamping the system. It's me just saying, that's how it works. So I know that it's a snake pit in there, right? Who do I want 
to go into the snake pit and who do I think can come out on the other side with my needs intact? So I appreciate you asking that. Thank you for clarifying. So I'm definitely not saying find the best compromiser. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And no, so it was a perfect question. Because um, I, saw, I talk all the time about how political expediency and incrementalism has never yeah. served us. Never. But that's always what we're, what we're asked. Um, we're always asked to do that. That's just, right. you know, well, just I remember when President Obama, yep. you know, during his first term, it was like, well, he's going to do all the black stuff second term. Yeah. Like, just wait till second term. And so it we're always happen. being asked to wait. It's true. They were like, you know, he can't do all that black stuff right now. He'll never get reelected. Yeah. So it was like, OK, do, do, do. Yeah. You know, but Harriet Tubman on the bill. And now Donald Trump took her right back off. Look, and like, here's phone. the thing. So thank you. <clears throat> you know this better than anyone. When laws are made, they start off one way yeah. and they end up another way. Yeah. And the reason is you got to get a majority of people to vote on your bill. Mm -hmm. To get a majority of people to vote on your bill, you got to give people what they want. It's like a really funky, ugly process. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with a bill right now where um, we are trying to finally get federal rights for domestic workers. The bill is written to have sexual harassment protections. It's written to have wage protections. It's written um, to counter all the ways that domestic workers have been carved out of labor laws. And it might not end up the way that we wrote it. Yeah. And we have to make decisions about how do we keep the integrity of the spirit of what we're trying to accomplish. And that's the funky, ugly thing about politics. Yeah. It doesn't mean we shouldn't engage, though. Mm -hmm. Right? It means that we have to know how it works. Right. So that we can figure out how to change it. Mm -hmm. And that change comes from the outside and it comes from the inside. Yeah. So you pick on the inside who's going to be your best vehicle. And on the outside, you organize your people um, to make it so that that person on the inside understands that every step they take is going to have major consequences mm -hmm. if they don't do right by you. Yeah. So. Am I wrong? No, nope, that's right. People are like, I'll vote for that bill if you give me what I want and has that's nothing to do with what's good for your family. Mm -hmm. Right? So and within the same party. Like easily. Literally. It's funky. Yeah. It's too over. Just whomever. Yeah. Whoever. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so you were speaking about how um, a lot of um, people in politics pander, not yeah. just to us, just in general. Yeah. Um, you would have far more information than I do. So how do you feel about the manners in which she has pandered, meaning Elizabeth Warren, to certain communities, knowing, I guess, a little more information than I have? How does that make you feel? I don't think it's as much as some people have done, but it still happens because it's politics. I don't like how politics happens. <laughs> so I, I had to be really honest that, um, again, who is the best vehicle? Right now, there is incentive for people to do all of that, right? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with candidates that, um, <laughs> he just they leave. come with their black lives matter and you just on. go like what 
just happened here, right? I mean, people want to tell you about the time they spent in Africa. They want to tell you about their black friend. They want to tell you how much they understand your pain. I mean, it's like a long litany of nonsense, right? And it's because the system is designed to be entertainment rather than substantive. Mm. So um, I'm supposed to think to myself, who would I have over to my house for dinner on Sunday night? Rather than who is actually going to move the things I care about and how are they going to do that? Mm -hmm. And how are they going to make sure that I'm involved in that process? So I think all candidates pander. Every last one of them, whether it's Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, they all do it. They pander to the people who they think um, are more likely to come out and support them. And then they try to figure out where can I get into new audiences? It's very parasitic. What I will say about the candidate that I have chosen um, is that I think and know from working with her um, that she deeply understands how race shapes policy. And she deeply then also understands how to make policy that empowers people who have been left out. Mm. That's it. I happen to think she's a good person, but that's not why I'm voting for her. I think Bernie Sanders is a good person too. You know, I think Joe Biden's a nice guy. Mm. Like there's lots of people I like. What about Amy? I don't want them to, oh. I just wondering. I don't want them to run. You know, they let me finish my set. I'm sorry. Um, she's not my candidate. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> yeah, another she's question. not my candidate. Another question? Is there another one? Did that help? BT Dubs. Okay. okay. Cool. Hi. Hi. Good evening, ladies. Thank you Good for your evening. time. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, so. I was wondering, I've been, I've attended the Hall of Injustice meetings, you know, the rallies that they have every Wednesday and a couple of times. The what justice meetings? The uh, Hall of Injustice, the Black Lives Matter rallies oh, that they have. Excellent. And, um, you know, I've met some of the, the organizers, uh -huh. Akili and. Uh, yeah, and Melina and Melina, all those folks. yes. Yeah. Yep. They're Shout out. quite delightful. Yeah. So, powerful individuals. But I was wondering, how do we hold district attorneys accountable? So, you know, as. We were speaking about pandering and, um, you know, Jackie Lacey, for instance, and how she's yeah. able to scapegoat and hide away or, you know, run away from, you know, from public, from public, uh, from the public. How can we hold her accountable? I mean, you know, so we just they just finally passed legislation for um, for lynching, right? Lynching yeah. just recently just passed. Excuse me. So for the 500, almost 600 lives that have that are accounted for her under her policy, under her term, like will they, will justice be found? Will there be justice years from now, like 100 years from now, or will be will there be investigations like as soon as the new district attorney is in office? Or how can we, let's say the new district attorney is in in office, does the same? taxes, follows her same policies, follows her mindset. Can we, how do we get, hold them accountable how, so that they stop running away? So that 
you know, so we can investigate them or their decision making. Got it. Yeah, there, there's a lot to it, but you know, I just feel like holding the district attorney responsible is the best way to <coughs> seek justice in our communities. Whereas they're just dying, you know, that's family permanent family separation, not just at the border, but which is family separation, but lives, people dying is also family separation. Okay. You know? Yeah, we got it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I have a lot to say about this. So I think the campaign to um, defeat Jackie Lacey is a really good example of how you hold people accountable. Um, the Black Lives Matter LA chapter has been involved um, for years now. Uh, in trying to both work with that office uh, to ensure that police who kill people are being held accountable. Um, Jackie Lacey has never prosecuted a police officer for murder, um, despite having the ability to do so and um, the cause to do so. Um, so what people are doing right now is organizing to make sure she doesn't get reelected. And um, it's highly possible that they will be successful because, right, they have been building a movement for years now. Um, on the other side of that, though, there are powerful forces that want to keep her in because she will not charge police officers for crimes that they commit. Um, and so that is politics. Yeah. With that being said, um, I think that one of the things that is actually unique about Black Lives Matter LA is that it's not just about accountability. They are often proposing new ways of doing things. And where accountability becomes strongest, I think, is when you have um, something different to offer. And that something different is actually what sparks people to want to be a part of what you're doing and to be a part of your movement. And I can tell you, for me, um, everybody knows that we have a problem, many problems in our criminal system. Mm -hmm. People know that. The question is, how do we resolve it? And that's where people disagree. Um, but to do that, right, you've got to put out a clear vision for what you want to see. And I think BLMLA has really been able to do that in a good way. That is part of why I think they'll be successful um, in the next few days when the election gets decided around whether or not she stays or goes. They've painted a very clear picture and also built a very strong movement around um, not just what it means to get her out because of the things she won't do, but what kind of what kind of district attorney we actually deserve. I hope that was helpful. Thank oh, you all. Cut it. Oh, yeah, my hair. My hair and the mic. Sorry. Um, well, this they were like, been... I was like, this is a dope dance. What are we doing right now? <laughs> so you I know. I was like, hey. I want to give you just a moment to say <laughs> something to close us out. Um, but do want to thank you all for being here. Um, for listening to my dear sister yeah, friend. thanks for coming A shero of mine. Um, so, Alicia, any closing words from you? Yeah. Um, um, thank you for having me. Thank you. And um, I spend a lot of time dreaming. I've spent more time in my life being mad than I can count. 
um, being angry. And I think where I'm at right now is that I want to spend my time in reimagining what's possible. And that is really what our work is about, is reimagining what's possible, imagining that Black people can be powerful in politics and be powerful in every other aspect of our lives. And imagining a world where Black people and Black communities have the things that we deserve, um, just like everybody deserves to have the things they need to live well. So I hope you will join me in that project. Um, and thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you. Thank you, sis. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Who are my children of the light? Striving to do right, my people are warriors. All we know is the fight, praying to see God and everything all right. Yeah. Who are my children of the light? Striving to do right, my people are warriors. All we know is the fight, praying to see God and everything all right. Me the younger side of, I say I'm just my father's daughter Like Christ my body beating But I refuse to holler Won't give them the satisfaction But I let the tears flow Steady praying for him Father forgive them They don't know That the revolution Will not be televised Twitter, Facebook Excuse me as I scrutinize Out of the mouth of this babe Comes perfected praise 